This episode of Print Room. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. I really feel like we need to mix that up. We're going to have to have a little meeting about that. I'm tired of saying that. Uh, <laughs> um, You're tired of me like being really worried that I'm going to say hello, Laura. It, it's my weekly nightmare. Yeah, I, every, <laughs> every Sunday night, I yeah. Um, today is July 10th. Um, And we've got, I think, a pretty fun episode for you. Today we're going to be talking about a wide variety of strange and stupid and provocative things that kind of happened over the last week. Really just the American (laughs) dream right here. Yeah, there's a lot of dumb stuff going on and a lot of really thought-provoking stuff going on. So we're going to try to dig into all that. But before we get to any of that, how about the basics? Absolutely. So our query show where we critique, you guessed it, queries by uh, writers just like you, um, we'll go live this Thursday July 13th. Um, Then we've got Writing by Reading coming up July 20th, also a Thursday. And our first pages show where we critique first pages goes live um, July 27th. So if you have a first page or a query that you want to submit to us for us to critique for you, um, that's available just to our Patreon subscribers. You can send them to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Um, and if you are not quite in the first page sharing and query areas of your writing and publishing career and you just kind of want to get some really, really good craft advice from the greats who are not us, but we can break down the greats and uh, <laughs> tell you why they're so good. Uh, yeah. um, you're going to want to listen to Writing by Reading when stay tuned. I think this week or next week we'll probably be dropping what mm-hmm. our special um, what our special selection is for this month. Yep. Um, so to get started this week with the show, I want to start with um, something you were doing this last weekend. Yes. And that is a fun little convention here in town called Convergence. Yes. And the reason I think it's interesting is, one, because it's a book event, and those are always um, you know, worth mentioning, I think. But I would say it's more than a book event. Well, I would, so that's the thing. Yeah. Is it's, that you get a chance to kind of see how within this is a science fiction and fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. And you get a chance to see how books in the science fiction and fantasy realm fit in with all this other stuff, whether it's television, movies, games. Um, so I guess you know, just start like tell us about tell us about the experience. Yeah. So Convergence um, is my local con. It's the first Comic Con that I ever went uh-huh. to. Um, so basically, in my life, I go to two different types of events. I go to writer's conventions where Mm -hmm. I'm worked like a dog and love every second of it, where Mm -hmm. I am wearing my agent hat. Right. Um, And then there are the Comic-Cons where I am wearing my agent hat, but I'm also wearing my fan hat. And everybody apparently is wearing all kinds of other hats. Yes. every Well, it's a lot of like latex, you know, like just showing off the buns for the start of summer, that sort of thing. Um, And what I love about Convergence is that it's an entirely fan-run convention. Mm -hmm. It's probably somewhere around 5,000 people that show up. So it's bigger than a lot of local fan conventions, um, but it doesn't have that like rampant consumerism that's attached to like San Diego Comic-Con or that, you know, the really, really big like official 
sponsored uh-huh. conventions. So if no one's buying anything, what are they doing? Well, people are buying things. People uh-huh. are, you know, people are in the dealer's room. But yeah. it's but it's less about, you know, like everybody who is working the con, everybody who's planning the con, et cetera, they're volunteers and they still have to pay for their ticket. Hmm. Um, so it's it's very much like a all for one, one for all kind of thing. Um, and what I really love about Convergence is that it's it's kind of a good like every fans con. Yeah. Um, you know, you can be into anything, like anything, a book, a TV show, a movie, um, a comic, anything, and you will find a little bit there for you. Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, it's not a huge gaming con, but there's still like an entire floor where there's gaming going on. Um, mm-hmm. And so what I like to do is I like to go... And I was thinking about it. People kept asking me, they're like, so are you on like vacation? Are you are you like hiding or are you like visibly Laura Zatz literary agent? And I had to think about that because, of course, I was there, you know, to see friends, to see people that, you know, I've I've known for many years. Um, But they're kind of people in the industry. And it's what's really interesting or are there are there people in like tangential industries like film or games and they're writers and other kind of mediums. And what's interesting about being in a fan convention like this is you really, really, really figure out what people are enthusiastic about and why. Right. And in a lot of ways, it kind of breathes breathes life back into my role in this business. But it also kind of like gives me a sense of like what I should be looking for and what people are really excited about. Right. And so um, it's a great like way to identify people's enthusiasms, you know, the sort of themes within science fiction and fantasy that, um, you know, separate from you and your endless stack of Microsoft Word documents and, (laughs) you know, paperwork to handle, you can actually see just like people be excited about things. Yes. I feel like that would be a good use of that. And kind of remind yourself that it's not just all statistics. Right. So one of, one of the, one of the panels that I went to was about dystopians, about how they're not dead. Sure. And if you work in science fiction and fantasy in book publishing, you'll know that nobody wants a dystopia. Mm-hmm. But this room was filled. Yeah. This room was filled. And it kind of just like reminded me that like instead of just saying no dystopias ever, what I should be doing because people are so excited about it and they're talking about how we're living in a soft dystopia right now. And <laughs> and yeah. people were still really excited about it, even yeah. though I can't necessarily sell to a publisher, hey, this is a gigantic dystopia. Mm-hmm. But what it tells me is that there are things about dystopias that are still really interesting and I can take something that is kind of dystopian and figure out a way to sell it in a way that's fresh and new, exciting to still give the audience what they want, but also kind of like get past the publishers. Like, yeah, I don't want this because I already have one. Well, so getting past the publishers, I think is the most interesting part about this weekend you just mm-hmm. had because um, so much of, you know, and we've talked about this a million times on this program, that so much of book publishing logic is, so, is self-referential. We're all kind of talking just to each other. Um, there's not that much, that many new voices in terms of like thought on trends and stuff that's coming from outside the industry. And so I think it's really interesting to see books like placed in a room next to all this other stuff engaging oh, yeah. with content. So like, I guess my question to you is, how do you see um, how do you see like the book publishing aspect of conversion, small as it is, um, like sitting next to all the movies or the television shows? Like, how does it fit? And what did you what do you think you can learn about um, you know book publishing in those specific genres from the enthusiasms generated by? You know, one thing that I find that books do 
in in a con like this where everything gets kind of equal space is that books bridge the gap between all these things so a really good example of this is with cosplaying which is if you're an uninitiated um cosplay is where people dress up as their favorite character and this is a thing that happens at like everyone is in costume well not everybody but like a a lot of people cosplay here because there are so many fandoms that it's exciting i went to the happy hour last year and everybody was in costume (laughs) you're not you're not fooling me i mean i people people dress in costume more for this con than most cons um but for instance, like books are this wonderful, wonderful bridge. So I saw um, a Edgar Allan Poe Dameron costume. <laughs> I also saw a Jon Snow White costume. And like those are. <laughs> wait, wait. Okay. So explain to me, explain to me the point of that. Um, is well, that bad? To, is that bad to ask? No, no, like no. If I, I say, mean, the what point... is the point of like taking these two characters? I guess. Yeah. And, like... Well, the, okay. So a big part of cosplay yeah. is is crafting and making something of your own, and kind of like taking part in a fandom's tradition of okay. like visual media okay. or whatever that is yeah, like. Sure. Okay. Sure. So people put a lot of themselves into this. It's not just I'm pretending to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of this is what I'm enthusiastic about. Look at it's all of the ingenuity. Yeah. Yes, look at all the ingenuity I, I did while making this. Right? It's not like you can just go to a store and buy these. You have to make them. Yeah. Um, or if you do buy them, you buy them from specialty like hand sewers and <laughs> they cost like thousands of dollars. Right? Yeah. Um, and so by doing that, what you're doing is you're – you're doing this as a way for you to express your own like personal humor and your own personal fandoms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's the great thing is everybody isn't just, you know, a fan of one thing. They're a right. fan of many, many, many things. Right. Um, and you get to, by, by doing two things and kind of mashing it up, you get to kind of yourself and for the people looking at you, you get to draw these connections between these various works that would never have been mashed up together before. Mm-hmm. And you get to start conversations about that. Yeah. And it's and it's also a pun, so it's you know it's it's good it's good yeah. there too, um, but yeah it it the books very much serve as a bridge you know the books are kind of the ev- everything you yeah. know so if people are anime reader or if they're anime watchers they probably read manga and if they read manga. You know, there's a hop, skip and a jump between that to novels and from novels, there's a hop, skip and a jump to TV and movies. And and it's kind of this big, like related circle. And you get in the the books help you see how everything's connected, which is exciting because that's what it's going to be like in your reader's brain. Right. And so and that's kind of the joy of a room like this is it's it's like all these connections. Yeah. Just like thrown on literal display. Yes. Right. Yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, So like, do you feel that the like in terms of who's driving the content right like Mm -hmm. who's creating the new things like is it books that are responding to trends set by television or movies is it movies that are responding to books you see what i'm asking like where is the i it's probably a little bit of each but um, like where is the truly because i imagine it's a lot of response to each other but like where do you think like the most original stuff is coming from that was probably that probably ends up stemming into all the other mediums oh 100% written in red content um just simply from a numbers perspective like if you think about um so if let's talk about movies movies are easy sure um there are approximately 300 big box major studio movies with actual distribution that come out every year Uh in the united states 
300. Yeah. There are millions of books published each year. Mm-hmm. So if from simply a numbers game, you know, there there are always certain books that come out that seem very trendy based on a success of a movie. You know, for yeah. instance, you take the superhero book that came out um, that became very popular after the Joss Whedon Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that was that was really popular. But those books were always kind of around. It's just now they're getting a lot of like mainstream attention. Yeah. Um, so I think I think there are more people sharing content, sharing sharing written content than there are people sharing perhaps visual content, um, whether it's, you know, 2D or, you know, um, or it's or it's moving pictures or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think I think books are always going to be the constant. They're going to be the bridge and they're going to be the constant, okay. which is which is nice to see because, yeah. um, you know, you definitely see people dressed up as book characters and you go, oh, you're thinking of this book character in a way that I never thought right. of that yeah. before. Yeah. Just take a something that isn't visual and makes it visual. Um, so that's good. I mean, that's interesting. So yeah, it was a la- lot of fun. Last thought, your last impression of convergence. Like if you had to like put an exclamation point on all this, what would you say? Ooh, um, just that it's a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a good time. It's a good time <laughs> to go and meet people. It's a really good time to yeah. go if you're single. Really? Yes. Oh. Oh yeah. It's yeah. a really good place to go if you're new to a city, like go to your local comic-con and like meet people who like what you do because there are never going to be a happier go lucky bunch to be like cool you know what i'm talking about right (laughs) that sounds good yeah it's a lot of fun it's a lot of fun that's probably gonna be the last thing we fun thing we talk about this episode yeah so i hope everyone enjoyed the fun Uh, um no we've got a little more fun but um, i think we should take a a turn um a hard right turn if you will (laughs) Um, and talk about probably our least favorite, um, you know, recurring. Uh, he's a recurring character. He now is at this a point. recurring he's, character. Um, but I want to. So I want to talk about Milo one more time, um, just because there's a new development in his saga with Simon and Schuster um, that I think is instructive to a larger book conversation um, that kind of builds on what we've said. Yeah. <laughs> and we we keep like coming back to him. And we like, always say that we're not going to talk about Milo Yiannopoulos again on the show yeah. because it's been a bit, but it's because it's been played. Yeah. Well, I don't want to talk about him yeah. as much as I want to talk about um, his publisher right now. And um, so basically, I mean, he's decided to he's decided to sue Simon and Schuster. And if you're you know, if you're unfamiliar with um, his relationship with them, um, you know, just go back and listen or look it up. Um, we don't need to rehash it all here. But like basically he had a book with them. Um, they canceled it on him after paying him a large advance. And now he is he's mad about that. And he's he self-published it, sold a bunch of copies. And it came now, out on July 4th. Right. The day after that, he held a rally outside of their offices yep. and said, I'm yep. going to sue them for $10 million, which yep. is many, many times more than what the advance was. Right. And so he makes a point here. And obviously, you know, to preface all this again, like I think that, um, you know, as we've said many times, I think he's a creep and I think he does not he should not be published by mainstream publishers. Um, that is clear. Uh, we're on the record saying that. Um, but he, he says something here that kind of raises my eyebrow, um, which is that they wanted that according to him and according to this Publishers Weekly article that we're getting this latest update from. So these are the facts as, you know, I have them and who knows, you know, maybe they're different than this as the case progresses. Um, but he says that they that he was told that the reason Simon and Schuster was canceling his book 
is because the manuscript wasn't fit to publish. Now, so they said basically, ostensibly, that means that he handed in his work. They looked at it and said, no, it's not good enough, and invoked that clause that said, if the manuscript isn't right, we don't have to do it. Now, that raises my eyebrow for a number of reasons. Um, the first is that, <laughs> the very obvious one, which is that isn't why they canceled the book, right? I mean, we Not know, even a little. No, I mean, we all know why, if you follow this at all, um, why they actually canceled. It's because they found that thing where he... Um, you know, said something, or he was found to have said something, you know, pretty pretty vulgar, and um, they no longer wanted to be associated with him. So it had nothing to do with this project itself. And, you know, Milo goes on to point out that, first of all, they let him keep $80,000 of the advance. Which is pretty standard. I mean, if yeah. a publisher cancels the contract, typically you get to keep the first chunk of, yeah. of, the, uh, of the advance, mm-hmm. the one that was gave upon signing. Sure. Um, And then, but he also says that the manuscript prior to submission had been edited and vetted multiple times by them. And they're just now saying that, um, you know, the manuscript is unfit to be published. And that's their reason for canceling on him. Which to me, all of this is so maddening because none of this would be a problem if you would just be, if you just showed a little bit of backbone up front and said, we don't want to publish this, you know, this, this guy. You know, back when we all knew he was a creep to start with. And it's like you tie yourself into these knots like this is the rhetorical rake you end up stepping on if you're Simon (laughs) and Schuster, you know, because I agree. I agreed with their decision to cancel his book. Obviously, I wish that they hadn't. Everyone um, did. Yeah. They hadn't signed him in the first place. But like, okay, fine. You're going to cancel him. Great. But um, you do end up having to, like, make up these weird reasons for it when you retroactively decide to stick your you know, finger in the wind and see which way it's blowing and like weigh public opinion and decide that actually the audience isn't there the way I thought. And one thing that I think is so silly about this conversation is originally, you know, we said that this was a decision made entirely on um, numbers. Simon & Schuster simply thought that they could sell a lot of this book and that's why they signed it. They didn't care what the ideas were in the book. They didn't care who it was that was going to buy it. Um, you know, all these things that make this guy a toxic and pretty vile person. Um, they didn't care about any of that. All they saw was an audience, and they said that's reason enough to sell it. They had dollar um, bills in their eyes. Right, and yeah. so their argument initially was audience, and now Milo has come back, and he has had some commercial success with this book, publishing it on his own, right? And he says that that success, that audience he's reached, forms the basis of his suit. He says, well, clearly the manuscript was in great shape because look at all these people who want it. And to me, it's just so sideways that the, that this debate is happening on grounds of audience, right? And it wouldn't have to if the publisher, again, had just stepped up and showed a little bit of um, foresight and backbone and said, this isn't, this isn't a project for us. And um, I don't know. It's, this, isn't about, this isn't about audience to me. It never should have been, and it is. Like, the problem and the reason now we're going to have to be mired with updates about this lawsuit all fucking summer <laughs> is that— And longer than that. Yeah, is that the principles on either side are—they're completely skewed. They're way off. And now we have this dumb slap fight that sort of skews from the fact that no one was careful at the beginning. And yeah. 
I mean, and, and Simon and Schuster, of course, is like slap back by saying that this is purely for publicity. They're not They're in breach right. of contracts, et cetera. Oh, it's totally but in breach also, of publicity no. because here's what Milo is doing with this. I mean, he he doesn't have. OK, so he's got a leg to stand on in terms of like you said my manuscript was publishable and then you said it wasn't. Yeah, I think he's right. I think he's I th- right. I think he has a point. That's what makes I him think mad he about has this. a point there, too. It, yeah. But as far as his reasoning for doing the suit, which probably won't have anything to do with the actual like where the suit lands but his reasoning for the suit is well and this is a direct quote from him how many more books could i have sold with their marketing muscle but in the same breath he turns around and say look at how mad simon and schuster shareholders are i sold a hundred thousand copies in the first week ha 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 ha, ha." so it's all just the same shtick as ever which is just picking fights and pointing out look how mad everyone is that i'm being successful right like that's kind of been his thing um, and that's fine. And I wouldn't care about this whatsoever if it wasn't for the fact that he's been able now to kind of draw in a major book publisher into this kind of stupid shtick he's always had. Yeah. And and now we have to read about it. And now it's just like, <laughs> I don't know, like all the stuff that we knew about him, apart from the one little incident, you know, like we we knew that we could have avoided this. And now he's got they've got this lawsuit. And if, in fact, the reason they gave him the um, they like stated in a um you know, in a letter or whatever that they were canceling because of the manuscript quality. I think that's bullshit. Like that is I, th- bullshit. I think that, that that I think that that actually is a really dumb reason to cancel this. Especially book. because there's likely nothing in this contract that says 100% that Simon and Schuster has to publish this. Book. No, they probably could. Yeah, they probably didn't even need to give a reason. You no, know, they, typically, you, typically yeah. in book contracts, especially with the big five, they give a timeline for publication, saying yeah. you know if this book isn't published in X number of months. Yeah then um, you get the rights back and you get to keep whatever money we gave you. But they already let him keep $80,000. Which he has been turned around and said, they're paying me this money to silence conservatives, which again, it just makes me want to pull my hair out. Which is just lovely. Yeah, but but the thing is, is they could have just been honest and told the truth and then we wouldn't be reading about it anymore. Yeah, if they had shown principles at the beginning, um, none of this would have happened. But now we have this stupid fight and they honestly they deserve this stupid fight and yeah. now they're gonna get it we and, don't but they do <laughs> well they do yeah. <laughs> um so i don't know i mean it's just it's kind of silly and i thought the reason we bring it up is because it does i think just once again speak to this idea that you can avoid a lot of dumb problems if you aren't making your decisions based purely on how many people you think are going to buy a book right if you actually make it based on do we think that this book and this author should be given the national media platform that we are able to offer. And the answer here was no, it's always been no. And now they're going to have to, I doubt this is going to, I like, I, I agree with you. I don't think this is going to end substantively. Like, no, not at but, all. Um, That's not the point. It but, got, it got the big like, long op-ed. But yeah. Now. Yeah. It's just such a like, pile of sewage that <laughs> uh, <laughs> could have been avoided just with a little bit of principle. And I hope that publishers learn from that. And I'm sure they will. I'm sure every publisher will. Yeah, I'm sure they'll take notes for this and say, this is exactly. (laughs) Publishers are really good at learning things. So this (laughs) will be great. Um, Uh, (sighs) Speaking speaking of like publishing substantive things Mm -hmm. and um, kind of moving forward and learning from things. um, We we have another piece of wonderful journalism (laughs) that came out in the last week, which is like been yeah. i've been getting texts from eric like every day for the past week like i'm, I'm so, so ex- excited about this article yeah, 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 um yeah. so this article is from heat street um 
which is an online publication. That's one way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's writing words on online. It's like a forum where like college libertarians can get mad about the gender of Hasbro toys. Okay, good. <laughs> uh, so this is by a man named Henry Jeffries, who was formerly of mm-hmm. New York City Publishing. Yeah. Now he has a blog about wine. Excellent. Okay. So this, the title of this Heat Street article is Mad Pen! Exclamation point. Yep. Publishing was a better business when it was fueled by alcohol in long lunches. <laughs> <laughs> so can I just say, before we like talk about why this is dumb, I'm, I've okay. been waiting. Like When we started this podcast, all I really wanted like at the beginning was just to be able to just examine really, really dumb things written about publishing. And this so, is it. So like this, I'm... This is your moment. Oh, I'm incredibly enthused about the fact that Heat Street has decided to wade into book publishing. It's it's great. Um, so what's giving you the basic thrust here? So Henry Jeffries came into publishing at kind of the end of the golden age, <laughs> wherein... Um, <laughs> let me let me give you kind of the, the bits about that. Um, all of the decisions were made over multiple bottles of wine. You start, you know, you cracked open a bottle of white wine at 11 yeah. a.m. and in editorial meetings, everyone was sloshed. <laughs> um, also, key to this yeah. is that editors had a lot more power. You know, they could do whatever they want, right? They could decide to publish a book in the middle of a boozy lunch because they didn't have to ask the rest of their team or the sales and marketing people. They didn't have to like do any of that money stuff they're just like you're really cool i'm gonna publish you okay Okay? yeah so i mean basically what we have here is a guy who is waxing poetic about this bygone age when all the you know the editors of the mid-20th century were able to just sit around with each other with no one else in the room um get you know good and good and schnockered and make deals you know entire entirely with each other and you know we like we had that episode about like the hamptons um recently it's sort of like a callback to that right like this person is sad that um you know something you know basically his argument here is that like editorial you know instinct has gone missing you know no one's allowed to just make a decision anymore and like really what it is it's like this cry for a boys club that doesn't exist anymore right like he just wants you know like the article is called it's called mad pen (laughs) <laughs> like Mad Men. Yeah. yeah. And so like it's just like trying to call back to this age and he thinks and that's what's wrong with publishing now. Like and he mentions, you know, like at the very end we've get, got things like, you know, Amazon and like technology and all and these that things. But, all of this is um, speaking like giving editors less power, speaking to publishers, becoming larger and more risk averse. Yeah. Right. So he's not wrong there. We've talked a lot in this in this show about publishers becoming risk averse. Um but just the idea that that opening it up from that boys club and like, by God, treating treating the business deals you do in this like a business <laughs> is just ridiculous. Well, if you treat them like a business, then anyone can participate. And that's what that's where this fell apart is like the reason the old handshake over lunch model worked is because you had to have inclusion into these private lunches. You know, you had yeah. to have inclusion into these things that no one was allowed in. I want to share a little tidbit from an example of like the old days and how people were really upset how that's changing. Yeah. Um, the 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 kind of how publishing is now is now referred to as Perrier culture because apparently getting slashed isn't okay anymore. Um, and this this was a slow transition. So I want to read to you 
um, a little anecdote from mm. this story. Yeah. This is from, um, this was told to the author of this article by bestselling author and journalist Francis Ween. Um, and it says he thinks that, quote, the rot set in as early as the 1980s. He told me, I propose to Gail Rebuck of the newly formed publishing house Century that we should discuss a new travel book over lunch at the Reform Club, saying that this is where this would be most auspicious since the reform was where Around the World in 80 Days started. I even offered to pay, but no. Gail said we would have the meeting in her office over broaden sandwiches and mineral water. Thank you very much. I abandoned my travel book then and there. Yes, because <laughs> there's a line in here somewhere about how publishing has transferred from like this, you know, old timey liquor culture, you know, where everybody just gets together and gets to be creative to what they refer to as Perrier culture. Yes. Um, so like mineral water is like a real problem for these people. Like I love hate. mineral water. <laughs> but yeah. Use them. It's, like it's, it's just this callback to all this like, you know, imagery and like, and as if there's like, there's like real innovation or something that's kind of attached to these closed off networks of people. And on one hand, you can sort of see like there is a kernel of truth here, right? Which is that maybe there was a time when editors were allowed to be a little bit more freewheeling and allowed to take some more risks and, you know, things like that. And maybe every once in a while that led to a better book. But it's, it's also, um, you know, that's a pretty closed off environment that involves, you know, really, you know, impossible to break in from new voices. Um, it involves, um, a really limited number of perspectives in the room. Um, you know, like I said, they, like he said here, um, these editors rarely had to consult anyone about acquiring a book. Which you know, just seems with, crazy to me. Well, I mean, it's it just kind of gets back to the idea that, you know, these it was just kind of unaccountable decision making by people with a very narrow worldview well, and a very similar worldview. You want to know why it seems crazy to me? Why? Is because, okay, so so the argument in this article is that by having to convince everybody else in this publishing house that this book is going to sell, um, that is where we're losing out, and that's why there's been no great fiction yeah. this century. Yeah, the right? problem is that no one's drunk enough at lunch. That's why there's but, no but here's here's the opposite side of that is like a publisher's job, he's saying, is is to figure out what the public might want. If you can't even convince your coworkers to like a book or to see value in a book, yeah. what makes you think you can convince strangers that are spending money on this? Yeah. You know, and like that, and like I we I totally agree that publishers are becoming more risk averse mm -hmm. but at the end of the day you know like as our jobs as agents are to sell books to people you know if if i said that like i shouldn't have to sell books to editors yeah like then what is the point like what like why do i think that this book can do well yeah i don't know he also completely undercuts himself at the end when he, um, he says, despite all the changes, one of the reassuring things about publishing is that even in the vast super companies, reading is still widespread and the heads still come from a publishing background rather than being outside corporate types. So, like, what are you complaining about then? That um, he's not, that he can't be a functional alcoholic at work. <laughs> That's what he's complaining about. Yeah. And here's, here's um, the thing, though, you guys. Uh, yes, you can. Well, yeah, first of all, yeah, <laughs> you definitely can. Um, but then he finishes here. And most publishing deals are still done over lunch. Okay, then what the fuck are we complaining about? But they just tend not to be terribly long or boozy. As for me, I left publishing in 2015 to pursue a career as a drink writer covering an industry that still knows how to lunch. So, like, with that <laughs> undercutting, I mean, it really does seem like the thing that he's mad about is just very, very literally that he's not allowed to drink at lunch anymore. 
on the job in his publishing job. Like, there's no less innovation. There's no less interpersonal communication here. Um, it's just that he doesn't get to be in the room with his friends anymore, and they don't all get to be drunk. That Call seems me crazy, be- <laughs> but if somebody decides to cut my author a $100,000 check, I'm going to say, thank you very much. Go home. You know, take a nap to celebrate and then like (laughs) believe before I say something dumb and they change their mind. Yeah, someone in there really did cancel a deal because they had to have a brought brought in sandwich in an office. That's good. Yeah. (laughs) Or like I decided not to write this book, even though the editor was into it because they paid for my lunch, but I had to eat it at a desk. Yeah. Like be happy that you're eating. Do you know how many writers don't eat (laughs) (laughs) or don't get Um, to eat? Yeah. So it's time for. A new segment or a, a semi new segment that we've done once before, but I'm happy to bring back that everyone, second installation <laughs> of a new segment <laughs> that everyone loved the name of, um, if I remember correctly, <sighs> which was the fiction author under FBI investigation of the week. <laughs> I don't uh, know if I'm gonging because yeah. I'm excited, excited that this is a segment or because I hate that name. Oh, you should be very excited. Um, so this week, our um, unfairly I guess it doesn't. I guess the segment doesn't necessarily mean it has to be unfairly. This um, particular instance, it was unfair that this woman was under um, FBI investigation. But uh, we were talking about the lovely Dorothy Parker, um, who you know, a poet, a critic, um, writer for Vanity Fair back in the day. Smarter than both of us put together. Right. Yeah. So Parker got in trouble um, for doing such scandalous things in the mid uh, 1930s as joining the anti-fascist refugee committee. Um, <laughs> that sounds and, very yeah. suspicious. And dona- yeah, and donating um, uh, medical supplies, ambulances, hospital, or you know, helping to raise funds for uh, medical supplies, ambulances, hospitals, and orphanages to assist refugees of European fascism. Um, all of this made her an incredibly dangerous uh, figure here in America. We certainly hated her. We put her on the. Um, she ended up on a blacklist. So she ended. She ended up having to go in front of the uh, House of Un-American Activities Committee, which was basically just, you know red hunting um so <laughs> you know they thought she was a communist and it got so bad um you know her and her husband alan campbell um, was also targeted because they both thought they had contributed to this communist uh paper in the mid-20th century and all this stuff and she got all these things and so uh john keats had something to say about it i think he had a good quote here um about speaking first of her husband alan campbell um, Alan Campbell was a victim of the Red Hunt, despite his well-known objections to Dorothy Parker's pre-war political activities and his refusal to have anything to do with them. And those, again, those pre-war political activities were like, you know, donating to like refugee funds. Saving children, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because her career in films was over, he could not offer him and Dorothy Parker as a writing team to any studio, nor was any studio willing to employ him alone because he was the husband of a suspected communist. To be unemployed in Hollywood is normally to be regarded as a pariah, but in these abnormal times, it was something worse. No one knew who might be reported for his association with someone else, however slight that association might be. No one knew how suspect were the friends of his friends. There was no help for this. No one could say when or whether the terror would end. The House Committee on Un-American Activities said it had evidence that Dorothy Parker was a communist. She was angrily noncommittal when questioned by newspaper reporters. She refused to become one of those who went crawling to the committee or to the studios to wear the guise of a penitent and redemption and good fortune by being traitorous. Um, so that's good for her that she didn't. good yeah good um, for her that she was busy like feeding orphans instead of like begging. Um, so yeah. Anyway, that's our latest installment of um, the again. I want to get the exact branded name right here. 
um, fiction author under FBI investigation of the week. You know what other great tidbit I found out today about Dorothy Parker, and I tweeted this out, um, that when she requested that her epitaph on her gravestone read, um, excuse my dust. Which I, <laughs> Good for her. Yeah, I, thought that, I thought that was very, very That's charming. charming. <laughs> um, anyway, so anyway, we're, we're building to a larger thing with these, obviously, but for now, you'll have to just deal with our weekly FBI installments. Hmm. Dorothy, we're thinking about you. Mm-hmm. So our main story tonight has to do with a book and an author that we've mentioned on this podcast before. During mm-hmm. our BEA arc episode, we were where we were begging for people to <laughs> um, send us books. Yeah. One of my choices was The Gray Bar Hotel, which uh, is by Curtis Dawkins. Um, and it was a series of short stories about prison. Well, this book just came out. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out last Tuesday, and it's by Scribner, which is a Simon & Schuster imprint. Um, this particular book and this particular author has been getting a lot of interest, um, most notably a big old article in the New York Times by Alexandra Alter, mm-hmm. um, particularly be, particularly because this author, um, in addition to having an MFA and having this be his debut book collection, um, is a convicted murderer. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that raises, um, all kinds of questions right off the bat, right? And it's kind of brought up all the old discussion of um, prisoners and publishing. And to me, it's an interesting question, not because, oh, well, should convicted murderers be writing books? Um, Because we've kind of already settled that, you know? Like, the answer is yes. And I think that um, anyone with any kind of opinion about, um, you know, free speech and the justice system and all that kind of stuff would agree that, People, you know, in prison should certainly be allowed to write books and they should certainly, when able, you know, be allowed to publish books. Um, Case in point, um, Penn America, which is an editorial um, and content association, has nationwide um, writing programs and they reach, you know, 20,000 inmates a year. So in addition to that, most other prisons have their own writing programs. Lots of uh, local undergrad and graduate schools offer college credit in writing to Mm -hmm. prisoners. So we've already answered this question. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what's interesting about it is, um, you know, prison writing is, I don't know if it's a genre or a category or something, but it's definitely like an established thing, right, in terms of um, these people writing things that presumably someone else would want to read. Um, But... We rarely see these books make it to mainstream publication, and especially not mainstream publication where they start to receive the sort of critical attention that this one is. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of that has to do with um, just how difficult it is um, to publish as an author in that position, right? Because, like, um, you know, just by the way publishing is set up, like you, you probably need an agent to get to one of these houses and it's really tough to get a literary agent when it's you're... It's even tough to get on the internet. Right, exactly. <laughs> and it's, you know, and, you know, just speaking strictly in terms of your, you know, attractiveness as an author, um, you know, it's tough to go and promote your book when you're in prison, right? Like there's a lot of reasons why that have nothing to do with like crimes that um, prisoners have a tough time, you know, obtaining agents and book deals, Right. Um, but this one has, and this one um, is an interesting case because, um, by all accounts, this man is a great writer. He's, you know, he's um, academically qualified. He's got an MFA and all that kind of stuff. Um, but I want to, I want to get, I guess my question is less about 
um, you know, should this convicted murderer be uh, writing books? And more about um, do we need to constantly talk about the fact that he's a convicted murderer mm. every time we talk about his book? And because, um, well, let's start, let's start with the jacket copy, right? Because I think that the jacket copy is interesting for this one. So if you, um, just reading like from the Amazon page here, so here we go, and this is where I, where I think um, stems a lot of what we're going to talk about right now. Um, so this is the beginning of the copy written by the publisher here. In this stunning debut collection, Curtis Dawkins, an MFA graduate and convicted murderer serving life without parole, takes us inside the worlds of prison and prisoners with stories that dazzle with their humor and insight, even as they describe a harsh and barren existence. So... <laughs> um, they're not, tr- they're not publishing this book, according to that copy and according to that construct, they're not publishing this book despite the fact that this guy is a um, convicted felon of a very explicitly violent crime. And you can read about you know, what this man did in this article that we'll send out. But um, it's that they, they're treating it as an asset, right? Like they've got um, you know, convicted, you know, convicted murderer serving life without parole in the spot where you usually put like the pushcart prize winner. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, right. It's following al- MFA, it's structurally, it's almost treated as an accolade or like something that you're using to lend your author credibility. Which in this case, I mean, it does. These are sure. prison stories. Um, so they're treating this as an asset, which I mean makes sense if you think back in popular culture to. Um, the recent success of Orange is the New Black, the Netflix right. show, and um, w- the content that it was based on, which is Piper Kerman's autobiography, Orange is the New Black. Um, this book was, you know, really popular because it was the story of just a normal person mm-hmm. who ended up in prison. And now <laughs> look at how interesting the people in prison right. are. And like, look at what the slice of life is like. Right. right? So, Prison has already kind of captured the public eye in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but what's really interesting, and I think I think this was this this came from our musings earlier today, was that people really, really attach themselves to Orange is the New Black simply because Piper Kerman and then her, you know, fictional character that was based on her Piper mm-hmm. Chapman, mm-hmm. um, because they didn't really seem like the prison person. You know, they just kind of ended up there. Yeah. And right. but but what's really interesting about that is we've we have looked at Piper Kerman and said, "Oh, well, even though you are you know, a felon, yeah. right? You were in right. prison for 14 months or whatever." Right. Um you're worth listening to because you have these interesting things to say from this very not all not at all unique experience, yeah. right? Um, and <laughs> and it's weird because we're we're kind of distancing ourselves through Piper Kerman. We're very much distancing ourselves. Well, well, yeah, but she's not really a prisoner, right? You know, um, but <laughs> at the same time, bad, she's not right? that That's bad. That's the sentence that gets the, said. Yeah, she's not that bad. At the same time, we're really really focusing on the the characters like the real people that she's presented in her book um which kind of in 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 a way shows to me that people really really are interested in the true um unsanitized version of what prison is because you know anybody can be there um but it also means that we kind of are relitigating the 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 voices that we're seeing well so that 
that relitigation, I think, is what's happening constantly with prison literature. It's why um, so little of it gets published, and it's why the certain ones that do come with these really strange qualifiers, and we're going to get to another one here in a second. Um, but like the line that you said, um, and that I said here a second ago, um, that you know Piper wasn't that bad as sort of this emblematic of like reader attitude toward her, where like no one is offended by her, no one is turned off by her, you know, because everyone has sort of collectively decided that she is someone we aren't necessarily, you know, repelled by and we want to hear from in there. And thus she can kind of serve as our vehicle of like looking at prison in all these exciting new ways for all of us, you know, suburbanites who are sitting out, you know what I mean? <laughs> We're not soiling right. ourselves by identifying with yes, Piper Carmen. Yes, exactly. Um, but with that decision comes, I think, an acknowledgement that that is an active decision, that that act that you've undergone there is a certain amount of relitigation of these people's cases, you know? And the, one of the things with prison literature, I think that it's really kind of eyebrow raising is how much time gets spent dealing with the identities of these authors, right? Mm -hmm. We have to constantly be talking about their crimes. We're not allowed to say anything about these books without also pointing out that, you know, these people are, you know, convicted felons or prisoners or whoever they are. And it's just kind of, it creates this space that's impossible to navigate. And, um, you know, we know it's impossible to navigate because we, you know, in our pre-show, I mean, we tried to, and it's it's difficult, you know, but um, because you end up trying to decide if people are quote-unquote good or not and the, and thus are worth hearing from. And I don't know, like, it's, it's tricky because along with it comes all these attitudes about the justice system, right? It comes with these, you know, this idea that someone who is in prison must constantly be asked to account for their crimes in the court of public opinion as well. Yeah. You know, and that's strange. That's strange to me. And it's not something that's even just in our heads. Like there's legislation supporting this. Yeah. Um, so there have been laws all over the country, um, but the, the kind of the, the most prominent one was the son of Sam law in New York yeah. city. Um, well, New York state actually, um, which stopped convicted criminals from profiting by writing about the crimes that they committed. Yeah. Um, you know, writing or producing a movie or, or anything like that. And the idea was that um, if they profit off of these things, if they profit off of their own story, then that is us saying, well, that's okay because yeah. it's entertainment. And so there have been many, many laws all over the country about this. Um, many of them disallow them from, yeah, disallow this um others say that whatever you earn it has to go to the families of the victims yeah. um in 1991 the supreme court struck down the son of sam law as being too broad and um infringing on prisoners first amendment rights mm. so there has been a very 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 long history of this this kind of policing of people's people's stories based on their position in the legal system and so it's it's extra i mean it's extrajudicial you know what i mean like it's people who have to, who have to decide for themselves whether or not they view someone as especially guilty or remorseful before they're allowed before they've decided they can um you know, or I guess as a sympathetic figure before they're willing to engage engage with the book um, in its own right. And you see that um, case in point with the blurb for this book, right? Like, because this book is getting good, strong, critical attention right now. It's got some blurbs. Um, but 
um, one of the blurbers, Nicholas Butler, Nicholas who's Butler, a novelist. who's a novelist. Um, he eventually, you know, he said that he was hesitant to endorse the book, right? Um, because he was, you know, because of how severe the person, uh, Mr. Dawkins' crime was, right? But he gave it, he ended up giving it a positive review, not because he had to make up his mind on the stories themselves, but because he decided that the the author was remorseful enough. Huh. You know what I mean? Which has nothing which has nothing to do with the stories. Like he so presumably he read this book, liked it, and then couldn't decide whether or not to say something nice about it because he couldn't yet decide whether the author was sorry for the crime he had committed and was already like serving time for. Mm. You know? And that's I find that I find that tricky. I find that problematic, not because I think anyone should like have to unabashedly, you know, support and love, you know, murderers who are writing things like that's if they, you don't like that, that's your personal choice. And there's no one I don't think you can necessarily be that can't be held against you. But we you kind of enter this space where an author where we have to like retry this person in the court of public opinion before we can critically engage with work. And I find that a little strange, like even, you know, the Kirkus review for this. And I'll read this real quick. Um, you know, this is from a, a positive review, by the way, of this book, you know, in Kirkus. So here we go. Debut author Dawkins is an MFA graduate serving life without parole term in a Michigan prison for a 2004 murder. Whatever one makes of the circumstances behind his incarceration, comma, he's unquestionably a keen observer of the psychological tools inmates use to sustain themselves behind bars. So even that, even just saying that, you know, he's a good observer of people and he's good at this, you know, and he's a good writer... It all has to come with these qualifiers. Even though he's killed somebody, yeah, he's yeah, exactly. actually good at writing. Exactly, <laughs> and so, and I would have, um, I would have less of an issue with this constant need to qualify this stuff if these people weren't already atoning. Right? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's in prison. You know, like what more? There's no other, like legally, there's no other punishment that this person should have to undergo, including critically. Um, for his book. I don't know. It's, it's interesting. And like, so I guess my question to you is, you know, these qualifiers, you know, do we need them? Like, should we have them? Because um, I think that like, to me, it opens ourselves into a lot of like very, very kind of subjective and relative um, conversations about um, who's good and who's bad. And probably a lot of the time our conceptions about who is and isn't aren't necessarily all that well-informed. I keep coming back to the New York Times article by Alter. Um, there are two different places where she's very, very, very vague about the ethics of publishing a convict. Sure. Um, and one, the term that she uses is ethical pitfall. Mm-hmm. The other is difficult questions. Yeah. And, you know, about whether this is okay. And I think the big thing here is that we are over and over again, kind of given this choice that we have to make with the copy, with um, the content of the book itself, with the visibility of this author who by all, you know, all intents and purposes from a marketing standpoint, like can very easily disappear because he can't do signings. He can't, you know, he can't Skype into people, et cetera. Um, All of this is kind of relying on the infallibility of our own justice system and then kind of making the justice system in our heads where we have to relitigate these people also seem very, very infallible. Well, and the ability, in addition to those two things, and 
on the ability of publishers to just kind of like make these decisions on who's good and who's bad, you know, which as we've seen earlier, they're not necessarily <laughs> great at. There's been one question um, that I've been having, you know, since we started planning this episode um, that I think that I think I have an answer to finally. And that is, how can we say, yeah, we should definitely publish, um, you know, this murderer's book and we should come to bat for this guy and we should say that, um, you know, we should kind of get rid of these critical qualifiers that come with every discussion of his work. Whereas, you know, half an hour ago, we were all anti-Milo, right? Like, this guy should <laughs> never have a public platform. We should totally get rid of it. All that kind of stuff. And I was thinking, well, how, how do you reconcile those two views, right? And I think, I think I have here. And I think it comes down to... Um, it comes down to the work itself and the intent of the work, you know, because, um, you know, Milo is right. You know, his book is sort of a direct extension of his toxic behavior, right? Like it's basically taking everything that is vile about him, announcing it as such and saying, and now it's a book that you can go spend some money on. Um, that's not at all what this artistic project is from this guy, right? Like he's someone who, um, did these things, you know, these, horrific crimes, right? Like no one is saying that it's not terrible, but now he's written this book that has artistic merit, right? Like that, you know, it's a, it's stories that present a perspective that the world would benefit from seeing, you know? And to me, to me, that's the difference is that he's produced something that's worth, like, I mean, honestly, the analog would be like if this guy sat down and wrote a nonfiction book celebrating how awesome he is at, you know, killing people, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> Which isn't which isn't what it is. He's written this, um, you know, by all accounts, by multiple review sources now, um, you know, quite a good set of stories that people would probably be enlightened by, that people might find thought-provoking. And to me, that's definitely worth fostering and definitely deserves to be free from the sort of moralistic qualifying that we do every time we seemingly have to talk about it. So my... My final point here yeah. is is kind of getting back to our overall theme of this episode, and it has to do with like publisher morality and, and yeah. the decisions of publishers. Yeah. Um, I want to see publishers making decisions on what to publish because there's more than just dollar bills dancing in front of their eyes, because it's more than just the public opinion, because yeah. it's more than what they're just, you know, assuming that our justice system is completely yeah. unflawed. I yeah. want there to be a point beyond I'm a mirror by my books. Right. I want there, I want there to be actual curation of the content that they're producing. And I want it to further the reader's understanding of other human beings. Yeah. I want it to go beyond the court of public opinion. And I think that this book is a step in that direction. Yeah, no, I mean, I would totally, I would totally agree with that. I mean, to me, it just comes down to having the necessary conversations. Um, is this a worthwhile project that you know deserves to be out in the world? And the answer here is very clearly yes. And given how you know, I mean, he's he's serving life without parole, right? So like, even if you do think this is the worst person in the world, um, he's you know that's that's all there is that's all the flesh you that's the pound of flesh you get from him you know and now he gets to write a book and so i find like you know the new york times article you know there's like like 60 percent of it is just like this vivid account of like his victims and like i don't know i find that um 
I don't know, I, distasteful isn't the right word, probably. It, but it's it's definitely sensational. It doesn't pertain to the... It, it's, exactly. It doesn't what, pertain. Yeah. The the article right. is shelved under the book review. Right. It's a, It should be a book review. And 80% of it is about the crime. Right. Exactly. And I, I'm interested about what the stories are going to do for me as a reader. Right. And I think, you know, ultimately that's why Scribner chose to publish this book. I also think that's why Scribner chose to put the fact that he is a uh, convicted felon in the opening line of the jacket copy because his um, it directly pertains to his expertise of the stories. Not because they, I think I'm going to actually give them, you know, the benefit of the doubt here and some credit that they're doing it not to be sensational, but because it does um, lend credibility to the author in discussing his subject. And they put it right in there with the MFA. So for me, <laughs> it's in yeah. the way that that sentence is structured, right. the way that the way that their copy is structured. Yeah. It's it's very much these two things: being a murderer and being an MFA, give this writer the chops that they need to write this important book. Yeah, Wonderful. and I just think he should be free of that. Like I think he should be free to write the book, and because it has merit, we should be free to talk about it without having to constantly evaluate him in the court of public opinion. So this week's um, this week's write tip is actually about more than writing, and it's about treating your writing life as like a creative life on the whole, and like doing things that like feed in to your, um, you know, that end up leading to writing. Like I think a lot of people, especially me, um, on days when maybe you were planning to write and maybe you don't write as much as you thought you were going to, or you like it doesn't quite go well, or you're feeling stuck or something, you can kind of get caught in this binary of. I didn't write today or I did write today. And the truth is that there are lots of things that aren't, you know, typing words on a page that I think should count as writing, you know, like reading things, you know, that help you feel more creative or inspired or doing a little bit of research or just like taking care of yourself. Or even just thinking yeah, about your story. Yeah, or like mapping things out or taking notes or making the outline. All that stuff should be considered part of the same process that typing the words is, you know. And so I guess the tip then is to treat all those same things with the same sanctity and dignity that you treat the actual writing and your actual like end output. We hear so often about people who are down on themselves for not writing or the ones that have figured out that they hate the drafting process. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think the thing to remember here is that the the research, the self-care, the thinking, the the outlining, kind of the the generation of ideas, re- reading other books, kind of engaging with other people about content, all of this counts. Yeah. And if the drafting is 20% and the rest of that is 80%, guess what? You still love four-fifths of this process. Right. And so feel right. good about it. Feel good about yourself. Um, and just keep plugging away at it. Don't think that zero words on the page means zero progress. Yeah. So with that, uh, we're at the end of our episode. Thank you so much for joining us on this, our 38th episode of Print Run. Remember, our query show goes live this Thursday. Send us your queries and first pages to us at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, and we will see you next week. Bye.